When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So could you name the three core components of gin? And do you know the role that gin played in the Gordon Riots? It's Friday, March the 22nd, 2013. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud. London, Michaelmas term lately over. London. Okay, you know where you are. A radical transformation. Very radical transformation. Morally outraged with what's going on. I got very excited this week. Seems reasonable, doesn't it? As soon as you scratch the surface, you realise gore happened all across London. Every open square would have a place called the Kittle Hoosie. Saw your Geordie's Grace riding on a goosey. The hell is that? (laughs) The man is tired of London. He's tired of London. So what was the first thing that caught your eye? The South has an overstuffed walrus. It's it's very important history. A handwritten letter from Charles Dickens. There's a piece of information we're missing here somewhere. You sneak through the city, immersing yourself in the sights and sounds. For the Jewish community who came over in their tens of thousands from uh, Russia, from Poland. We are doing a modern take on Morris dancing. When did he think the second coming was going to happen? Yes, Boris... He wants to put an airport. <laughs> the, t- the tone with which Boris has announced that is fatigue. Yes, the city is always changing. People frequently say to me, you know, won't it be wonderful when it's finished? And I say, no, it'll be dreadful. No, it'll mean it's dead. Inform and entertain. That's what it's about. London is a modern Babylon. That's very true. Can we have some of the detail here? Well, I am on the second floor of a building overlooking Portobello Road. I can see the market off up to the left. The light is just beginning to fail. And uh, I'm up here in a room surrounded by glass in particular. I'm at a big square wooden table. On the shelves are glass stills with little silver taps, and they contain things like finest Yorkshire tea and licorice and angelica root and things like that. On the table at the centre there are a number of jars, can see they're labelled cassia bark and uh, English hops, lemon peel, all sorts of delicious stuff. And uh, right next to me is Jake F. Berger, and he is the uh, gin instructor here at the Gin Institute. Hi, Jake. How you doing? Yeah, good. I'm, I'm intrigued by all these bits and pieces in the glass jars here. Uh, we know this is gin-related, but what uh, what is this room for? So this is the Gin Institute, which uh, is our little facility down here on Port Bella Road, which we opened just over a year ago, 14 months ago. And our aim is here to offer people an experience where they can come and not only learn the long, and I'm afraid frequently miserable history of gin, which is uh, full of thoroughly entertaining stories, um, but then we also allow them to create their own unique recipe gin. So it's a, a, a gin school where we can offer a bespoke gin service, essentially. Okay, so I can imagine people coming in here and uh, wanting to find out how to make gin, which I think is something that we're going to be trying our hands at yeah, shortly. We'll make, we'll make a, a bottle to your uh, desired recipe later on. So, And what, what about this sort of tailored gin approach? Do many people have such a specific taste in gin that they have to have it specially made? I mean, this is uh, a fairly unique offering here, what they do, really. But, you know, gin, there's you're limited only by your imagination in the number of and variation of botanicals that you can use in gin. So it's nice to give people a, a chance to put their own kind of uh, unique stamp on it. Okay, let's take a a step back before we dive into the gin. (laughs) No, that's not what I mean to say. (laughs) Gin, of course, has a history connected with London. We think of Hogarth's Gin Lane in particular, the gin gin epidemics and so forth. And you mentioned that there's a miserable history behind gin. What's that all about? Well, Hogarth certainly uh, encapsulated the misery of the gin craze, but we can probably go back a bit further than that to look to the, uh, the very roots of London's love affair with gin, perhaps all the way back to about 1568 when Queen Elizabeth I was sitting on the English throne and she was 
great allies with the Dutch royal family. The Dutch were having terrible problems with the Spanish trying to impose Catholicism onto them and the like. Uh, so she summoned her favoured nobleman and chief suitor, one Robert Dudley, the first Earl of Leicester, and charged him with uh, assembling a, an army of troops to go and fight alongside the Dutch in their fight against the Spanish. And uh, whilst they were over there, they are said to have acquired the habit of getting uh, loaded on the local hooch before going into battle, the alleged origin of the phrase Dutch courage. Um, the drink they would have been drinking was Geneva, or Geneva, which is uh, a Dutch juniper-flavoured spirit, which takes its name from the French word for juniper. Uh, and we acquired quite a taste for it. And after the wars were all wrapped up, we returned to London, perhaps with around 5,000 uh, Dutchmen with us, and at first we were expensively importing the Dutchies or the Hollands, uh, but we soon realised that we had the wherewithal and the technology to create our own version of it, and the word was quickly shortened from Geneva to gin, and uh, that's the, the birth of gin story here in England, really. London was certainly uh, a big part of it, but uh, distillers would also pop up in places like Bristol, Bath, and the coastal towns, Portsmouth, Plymouth, where of course they're still distilling today. But for the first kind of 100 years or so, it was very much the preserve of the, the working man and the peasants and the kind of criminal underclasses, I suppose. Oh, right, because you brought it in with Robert Dudley there, but, uh, of course, of aristocratic means. But uh, why, why was this a working person's drink? Um, it was, I mean, chiefly, I, my presumption being it was the most efficient and affordable way to get drunk, really. So this was a soldier's rather than Dudley himself who were uh, yes, knocking yes, his back? Yes, completely, yeah. We don't see the, uh, the aristocracy or even the, the kind of middle classes starting to enjoy gin for a, uh, a good long time yet. Yeah, it was uh, very much the drink of the, of the peasant and the working man for a long time. Uh, it bubbles along for the best five hundred years or so. Um, a lot of the English at this time are still drinking their ales and beers and ciders. We're importing a lot of French wine and French brandy. And gin is still, as I said, the preserve of the uh, peasant. And then 1680, another Dutchman comes into our story, William of Orange who himself was a king drinker of the expensive imported Holland's gin. His royal palace was known as the Gin Palace at the time, a phrase which comes back into our story in about 150 years. Well, let me, let me put the brakes on, because what I'm noticing then is potentially that uh, the, the aristocracy, the royalty in parts of Europe were drinking this, but over here it's got an entirely different social standing. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, perhaps the, the Dutch I mean, uh, invented this Geneva, and uh, it was perhaps uh, escaped class kind of uh, boundaries over there but over here certainly not uh, he was the exception not the rule but one thing that uh, he did do whilst on the throne was in a pattern which has been repeated down through history he was a, a British monarch with uh, a particular problem with the French uh, so upon seizing the English throne he outlawed the importation of all French goods which meant, meant the supply of French brandy and French wine dried up and the uh, English gin producers soon grasped the opportunity and plugged that gap with the English gin which with the benefit of a historical standpoint we can kind of pinpoint that as the beginning of the gin craze which is an era which lasts on and off for the next 200 years or so and this is where the uh, story begins to get really miserable 200 years I had no idea it went on for that long my, my impression was that they put taxes up everyone went nuts for a, a, a few years and then they sorted the problem out I mean it comes and goes um, I suppose at first the gin craze is just ticking along under the uh, throne of uh, William of Orange, but he was only on the throne for 22 years and was succeeded by his sister-in-law, Queen Anne, who uh, immediately deregulated the distillation industry, which may have been a popular but perhaps misguided manoeuvre. And in her short reign, we saw English gin consumption jump from half a million gallons a year to five million gallons a year. So by the time we're into the kind of early uh, 1720s, the 1730s, we've seen the amount of gin being drunk in England really increase to frightening levels and really start to have a very dramatic and noticeable effect on the inner city, similar to a modern drugs epidemic like we see with crystal meth in middle America at the moment or something like that. It really kind of leads to an increase in crime, a breakdown in the family, uh, tragic circumstances, really. You mentioned the inner city. I was wondering whether gin found its way into the country or was, it this, was this really this an time, urban issue? Yeah, this time very much the, the, the drink of the, uh, of the inner cities and the working classes, really. Um, I suppose the country folk had access to their beer and their ciders more easily, I guess, because they've got the, the ingredients uh, uh, surrounding them. Um, and we're moving now into that kind of time of, uh, of William Hogarth that you mentioned earlier on, the gin lane. It was uh, 1729, so just a few years before Hogarth printed his, uh, his print. It was Francis Place, a social commentator from some years later, wrote that from this era, enjoyments for the poor of this time were limited. They often had only two, sexual intercourse and drinking, and that drunkenness is by far the most desired, as it was cheaper and its effects were more enduring. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, people were drinking and... Uh, 
having sex and obviously there was many unwanted children so we have this story that could be seen as an enduring consequence though couldn't yes. it <laughs> well we, it was fairly awful times it was before the age of uh, a welfare state and before effective contraceptions an unwanted child could be quite a burden so a common route to take would be to give up the child to the workhouse where it would be fed and clothed and looked after till such an age it could be put to use and we have the story from 1734 of Judith Defoe who uh Having given up her child, a couple of years later reclaimed the infant and promptly stripped the clothes from its back, which she sold for one shilling and four, which she spent on gin, uh, leaving the naked child abandoned in a ditch where it dies of exposure. So, you know, we use the phrase mother's ruin quite flippantly these days, but back then it certainly had far more sinister overtones, which leads us nicely into the uh, the etching by William Hogarth, Hogarth Gin Lane. Yes, this is one of the uh, most famous images really isn't it when, it when it comes to London in the near ground we've got a building with a pawnbroker's uh, symbol hanging off the side of it there uh, I guess indicating the, the poverty that's brought about we've got uh, what looks like a, a drinks joint a beer joint an alehouse something like that in the near ground and in the steps up to the sort of piazza there we've got a mother half disrobed she's got bits hanging out and uh, a baby is falling off the side railing to its doom which is probably the, the most depressing element of all of it yeah well, the, the child is dropping down into the steps of the gin shop which has a inscription above the door reading drunk for a penny dead drunk for tuppence clean straw for free people get so drunk that they wouldn't be able to find their way home they'd have to sleep in the gin shop the mother herself has got syphilitic sores on her legs so we can presume that she's turned to prostitution and there's kind of ghastly figures all around this chap here looks like uh, he's at death's door there's a woman feeding gin to a newborn child there the distillery itself that everyone is drinking outside is rather unsubtly called the Killman Distillery. The poor old barber has hung himself because he uh, doesn't have uh, any customers because they've all spent their money on gin. Some fairly awful scenes. This chap's walking around with a baby impaled on a spike. It's all fairly dramatic. Oh, how did I miss that? I've seen this picture a hundred times. <laughs> so we can presume William Hogarth's opinions on gin to be uh, fairly obvious from looking at that picture. Um, this was whilst Gin Lane wasn't a, a real street, it was inspired by a very real neighbourhood. This is the St Giles area of London, so kind of round the back uh, of where we would find Centre Point now, that kind of district there. Clearly, this is taking things to an extreme, but how far reaching was this gin problem? Um, well, in this particular area of London, it was calculated that as many as one in four. Uh, houses have been turned into a gin shop, so it was fairly dramatic times here. People were drinking staggering amounts. Um, so the government stepped in in 1729 and passed the first of eight gin acts, which, you know, might, we might think it funny to think of an act of parliament dedicated solely to gin, but I suppose Mr Cameron's recent minimum pricing policy for alcopops and strong ciders uh, achieves a kind of similar similar ends in that uh, that's an attempt to stop the young and the poor of today from drinking themselves to oblivion by taxing those drinks out of the reach and we used the same tools back then so the gin acts chiefly concern themselves with taxing gin out of the reach of the working man which as you can imagine wasn't hugely popular and led to much rioting and civil disobedience and uh, a great deal of illicit distilling and illicit selling of gin the first gin act for example in 1729 they made the mistake of referring solely to gin not to distilled spirits, so the people just changed the name of gin to parliamentary brandy and carried on much as they were. Right, so this isn't far off the issue with those um, legal highs where they just change the, the chemical yeah. formula just slightly and they get around the rules that way. Yeah, I mean, they probably weren't even changing the recipes at all, they just simply changed the name of it in this case, but yeah, it's not a million miles away. Throughout the 1730s and the 1740s, they tried these various gin acts which were largely a failure and gin consumption continues to spiral out of control. Then in 1751, the government tried again, passed the Tippling Act, uh, which instead of increasing taxation, basically increased bureaucracy. And amazingly, or according to the, uh, public, the, the kind of public information figures, it, uh, it worked, and official consumption fell from 11 million gallons down to 2 million gallons. And our story goes very quiet for about 50 years. If it wasn't the end of the gin craze, it was perhaps the pause in the gin craze. It doesn't quite ring true to me. The social circumstances had not really changed. And I suspect that... Probably gin consumption just went further underground and there's little reliable information about how much was being drunk. Certainly there was still a demand for gin in this era. 1769, we see Alexander Gordon open his distillery in London. Of course, Gordon's still the largest London dry gin brand in the world today, although sadly made up in Scotland these days. Um, so certainly there was still a, dem a demand for gin, but uh, we do see the story go a little bit quiet. During the, the middle of this 50-year quiet period in, in the history of gin, we do have the story of the Gordon riots, which I hasten to add a, nothing to do with Gordon's gin, but we named after Lord Gordon. And during the, during the afternoon of rioting, Black Wednesday, June the 7th, 1780, uh, the mob turned their attentions to one Mr. Langdale and his gin distillery in Holborn, which was well known to have stockpiled 120,000 gallons of gin. 
and he'd made the schoolboy error of uh, bribing a few of the local mob to gather the distillery for him and he uh, also compounded that error by paying them in gin so as you can imagine things got fairly messy and the uh, people were soon in the distillery helping themselves and smashing open the spirit casks and we do have this uh, press account from the time which is all rather horrific but it ends on a sudden in an atmosphere hot to suffocation flames leapt upwards from Langdale's other houses and columns of fire became visible for 30 miles around London a fire engine was unwittingly used to pump yet more gin into the flames, spreading the fire upwards. So, so I mean, the, uh, the fire engine would have been one of the old pump-action ones, probably fe- feeding directly from the sewers, which would have been flooded with gin of about 50% alcohol, so this stuff would have gone off like a bomb. Uh, sounds like quite an entertaining sight, but tragically, anywhere up to 200 people died, so we shouldn't be too tickled by it, but... Uh, must have been a, a dramatic sight to see. That's an aspect of the Gordon Rights you don't hear about. The sewers <laughs> with flowing with gin. Incredible. That's interesting when you say yeah, that there was two, only two million gallons of gin in that year. I wonder what the population of the country was at that time and how many gallons gallons of gin per person was being consumed. Well, if we jump forward a little bit, we'll move forward to the uh, start of the 1800s and the, uh, the Industrial Revolution begins to kick in and people are moving to the cities in ever greater numbers the gin shops were being overwhelmed and the entrepreneurs and distillers of the day had seen the opportunity once again and set around building what we now call the gin palaces which were large enormous places really with uh, elaborate decoration and uh, really spectacular looking places and they were a huge success and really fed gin consumption so by the time we get to 1833 we've got a population of around 25 million drinking something like 22 million gallons of British spirits a year of which we can presume a good percentage of that to be gin Uh, and it was calculated that there was the six by the 1830s, the kind of distillation of gin in London has become somewhat of a monopoly between about six companies, and it was calculated that they were producing enough gin for every man, woman, and child in London to drink half a litre a day. Spectacular figures. Now, a lot of it was getting sent to the rest of the country, and quite a lot of it was getting exported as well. But, yeah, people were drinking exceptional amounts. Was the, was the Empire drinking a lot of our gin? I mean, there is evidence I've seen, which is little discussed by the uh, old gin houses for obvious reasons, but I've seen pictures of uh, gin uh, being carried ashore as part of the kind of uh, the slave triangle and things like that so you know that was the the third leg of the journey from England back down to Africa they may well have been carrying gin then so gin was certainly been sent out and of course it was been sent over to India when you know in the uh, the days of the East India Trading Company and things like that there was a lot of gin being sent over there at that time and being carried aboard the ships of uh, Her Majesty's Royal Navy as well so yeah a lot of it was finding its way away from these shores. What about these gin palaces that you mentioned? Do, there, do any of those exist still? The best preserved one, uh, in my opinion, is probably the Princess Louise on High Holborn, which is now a Sam Smith's pub. And, uh, well, I, I, I believe the only gin available in there is Sam Smith's own brand gin, which is a shame for uh, a wonderful-looking place like that. But uh, it's well worth a visit just to see the fixtures and fittings, and uh, it's a very well-preserved example, amazing-looking places. The gin palaces, which kind of, uh, I suppose, they uh, reached the height of their popularity in the 1830s, I did find this account, Saturday night in a gin palace from 1839, which relates the uh, events of one night in what was then London's largest gin palace, which could be found down by Waterloo Bridge. And the figures defy belief, really. Every day they would sell 200 to 300 gallons of ale, which is quite a lot of ale, but there's probably some student pubs that might rival that now. But then the weekly spirits order is spectacular. Five casks of rum, each of 300 to 400 gallons, and then even more, amazingly, almost unbelievably, 2,480 gallons of gin a week. That's nearly 20,000 pints of gin in one venue in one week. And it was reckoned that the 15 biggest gin palaces in London were serving something like 250,000 people a week. That's when the population of London was probably only about a million. So it was said that at uh, any given time of day or night, as many as one in four Londoners may have been uh, intoxicated and kind of... Uh, out of action through gin consumption which when you walk through Soho it doesn't feel like too much has changed sometimes but uh, <laughs> well I was going to ask you actually what, what do you make of the comparison between that sort of period and the consumption of alcohol now certainly uh, Friday and Saturday nights around London as you say it gets a bit lively it does yeah but I mean the, the, the moral panic we've seen in the last few years about binge drinking uh, I think if people took a look through the history books to see what it was like in the past they'd actually think and see that uh, the current generation is probably uh, a little kind of uh, easier to manage than it, than it was back then. I mean, obviously, uh, England has a long and fraught relationship with alcohol, and I don't suppose, well, like m- many Northern European countries, we don't have the healthiest relationship with it, which was one of our reasons for building the Institute, really. I think if you think where English, uh, the English relationship with food was 20 years ago, we had a fairly 
awful kind of uh, setup there and uh, that's only been improved by education through TV shows and the books and the magazines and the radio and that kind of thing and in alcohol we pretty much get all our education from the label on the back of a bottle which is not always the most reliable source so things like the Gin Institute I think uh, help to, if you can explain alcohol to people it improves their relationship with that I think So what are you personally Jake, are you uh, an educator or are you uh, a gin technician or how do you see yourself? Well I got to choose my own job title so I call myself gin instructor um, but uh, I suppose it uh, encompasses many different roles. We uh, very much enjoy the educational side, I think. We probably have something like 30, 40, 50 people a week through the doors here learning. You know, it's a full three, four-hour kind of session, so people go away with a very good understanding of the history of gin. I'm also now a, a distiller. I'm in the fledgling days of my dist- distilling career, I guess. Um, but that's a side of things that I, I very much enjoy and that's a, a rewarding side of things. And you've mentioned the sort of the potential health consequences or a healthy relationship with alcohol generally, but gin specifically. But um, what, what really drives you to want to educate people about the, the history of gin, for example? I, I, as a bartender for 20 years, I developed an appreciation for most different kind of uh, sections of the spirit uh, family, so to speak. But uh, if you were here in London, if you're going to educate people about one specific alcoholic drink, gin is the only story to tell, really. The history of gin and the history of London are so intertwined um, that uh, it's, it, it makes sense to uh, to cover that whilst we're here on Portobello Road. What's the profile of gin in London right now? I think the last kind of, well, the last five years, certainly, and perhaps leading into that a little bit from the last kind of ten years or so, we've seen such a resurgence in interest in, in the popularity of gin and the and people wanting to find out about gin as well um, we've seen a great many new brands come to the market and lots of the historic old brands kind of updating and premiumizing their range so it's a, a golden era for gin that we're living in at the moment really um, anecdotally just you know we're, we're bar operators as well so we have uh, four bars in Leeds and the, and the Portobello Star in London and just from looking at our sales figures in the last few years you know vodka used to be king of the hill by a country mile but these days our gin and vodka sales are pretty much on a level so gin has really seen a, a, a vast improvement in its fortunes and you're aiming of course to get it up to 20,000 gallons a day <laughs> well yeah if it was all portable rod gin I'd be happy with that yeah <laughs> alright well I know we've got uh, a couple of things to look at here we've got the the process of distilling gin that we're going to look at but we've also got some artifacts and objects connected with gin that perhaps we can have a look at as well yeah we, we, we can uh, we can take a look around the museum certainly there's some some great old things down there which help to explain the story and then we'll uh, sit down and uh, I'll talk you through the process of making gin and we'll create you your own unique recipe if that sounds good so this can be the the Londonist out loud brand of gin excellent stuff Fantastic. Before we go down, I just wanted to check this claim with you. Have you uh, had this claim to be the second smallest museum in London uh, independently verified? <laughs> no, I believe the smallest museum in London is the is the Faraday uh, experience, which consists of Michael Faraday's shed and desk, as far as I'm aware. Um, no, we are the self-appointed second smallest. So if, if any of your listeners know of a smaller one or if, uh, or, or if any of your listeners run something that they would claim to be smaller than us, then we'd be uh, happy to... Uh, Look into it. But, uh... <laughs> Londonist Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on a 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet or desktop, or burnt to CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist and click through. Well, we're heading down now, a narrow staircase. And uh, for someone my size, I can I can confirm it is a mite cramped, but um, I'm not sure about this uh, second smallest in London. We'll have to see about that. We're now in a room that looks uh, a lot like a sort of a Wild West saloon bar or a Victorian public bar, something like that. There's a globed chandelier hanging down from the ceiling a highly decorated Institute mirrored panel absolutely beautiful object yeah, there this room the, the, this is a kind of our homage to the stylistic cues of the gin palaces now the gin palaces obviously would have been much larger than this but they were spectacular looking places with mahogany bars and brass fixtures and fittings and these three panels of uh, mirrored work that we had done are very much in the style of uh, 
of what the, the Victorian, well, the, the kind of pre-Victorian gin palaces would have been from the uh, 19th century. And over here in the corner, you've got this has got to be a still of some description over here. Not a still, no, a bit of an oddity. That um, it's called Clark's favourite bar stove, and it was essentially a, a rather complicated contraption for serving hot drinks. Uh, hot gin punches on mulled wines or something like that. It's gas-fired from the bottom, and then there's a small kind of stained glass panel in front of the uh, where the gas gas lights would dance around, and then the whole top half of it, this big black box here, is essentially a giant water tank with these beautiful copper taps on the front, and we would, these kind of trophy-like things on the top, we would lift the lid off one of those, and they're linked to a, a tube which loops around inside, coiled around inside the uh, hot water tank, and if you would pour it, pour the liquid in the top there... <coughs> leave it for 30 seconds or so and then turn the tap on it would come out piping hot you know of course in this era no one had double glazing or uh, central heating so hot drinks were much more hot alcoholic drinks were much more popular in that area than they are now either to warm you up when you arrived at the gin shop or to fortify you for your journey home afterwards you know so but it's somewhat of an oddity we think it probably comes from America because of the spelling of Clark's favourite bar stove they use the American spelling of favourite but uh, we've come to something of a uh, we stand still trying to find the history of the piece. I uh, have my two uh, most reliable jinx historians, Jared and Anastasia, who are perhaps the preeminent jinx historians in the world. They came and had a look and rooted through the American patent list and the UK patent list and their vast collection of uh, manuals and uh, catalogues of barware from that kind of era and can find no mention of it. So it may be the last of its breed. It may have been the only one of its breed. I don't know. But uh, I take it you haven't nice, turned it on yet. It's certainly nice things out. No, it's not in working order yet, but uh, we have been offered uh, our good friends at Hendrix Gin have offered to fund its restoration but um, well who do, if you don't know any of the history of it who do you find to restore it that's the main problem <laughs> we've got those lovely green tiles up to waist height and then above that there is a case containing all sorts of uh, gin bottles and, and other sorts of uh, alcohol as well there uh, many of them not looking as though they came off the shelf yesterday <laughs> no it's quite a, uh, a nice collection now for the most part they're from the 20th century some of them perhaps a little bit earlier than that it's been good fun putting this collection together from various different sources and they do help us to tell the story of gin these three rather uh, kind of unadorned bottles on the top shelf there are perhaps the oldest ones and they would be examples of Geneva bottles so that's what's known as a Dutch uh, case gin bottle those kind of square bottles like that which is what the Dutch Geneva or the Holland's gin would have come in originally is that a shape specific to the gin? Yeah, very much so. I mean, it was it fits easily into a box and doesn't move around in a box. So when they were shipping uh-huh. shipping gin around like that, that was the most sensible way to do it. The middle, the one in the middle there was uh, gifted to us by Mr. Salvatore Calabresi of London's Playboy Club, a wonderful man, and uh, that came into his possession when it was retrieved from the bottom of the North Sea. I uh, bought it had been bought a, a ship that sunk in 1901 uh-huh. and was bought up about three or four years ago. We, uh, Salvatore cracked it open and then we tried it and uh, he donated the rest of the gin institute. I'm afraid to say it wasn't ever so tasty, uh, but it was a very generous gift. <laughs> what did it taste like? <laughs> a bit salty, I've got to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think the cork had been quite as tight as it might have been ideal. And uh, over on the other side of the room here, uh, Francis Bacon. What's he doing up there? Uh, up there, well... Oh, he's not illuminated, who's that? Yeah, that's Turner as well, the, uh, the artist. Um, I would like to tell you a story about how related they are to the world of gin and we did for a long time make it up and say that they were Victorian juniper farmers and things like that but uh, actually no, these fixtures uh, we uh, came across them at a, uh, an architectural salvage place in Bristol and whilst they have no real relationship to the story of gin, they are very much in the style of the gin palaces so that's why, that's why they're there so this is the uh, this is the entirety of the museum, and you're daring to fill up space with with non-gin related artifacts. There's another case of another case of where we have some more interesting things as well. Perhaps one of the jewels of our collection. That's the original business card of Professor Jerry P. Thomas, who was uh, perhaps the greatest bartender the world had ever known, and uh, he assured himself a place in drinks history when he published the Bartender's Guide or the Bon Vivant's Companion in 1862, which was the world's first cocktail recipe book. This is a beautiful. Uh, this is a beautiful uh, hand-drawn card. It looks like uh, shows uh, three people sort of falling over. Really, been, I think they've been washed over by a wave. Is washing over them. There's a little stingray there as well. It's a rather odd picture to have on your business card, and doesn't seem to have much relevance to uh, the good professor's profession. But uh, it's very colourful and very nicely put together. I must say. Was he really a professor? He wasn't, no, no, self-appointed professor. <laughs> I think there's a lot of that going on. We also have here the uh, signed book from uh, the, the Savoy Cotsell book, which is 
perhaps one of the most important cocktail books. It's certainly the longest continually published cocktail book. It's not been out of print since uh, it was first published in 1930, this particular copy from 1931, but signed by the author himself, Mr. Harry Craddock, who uh, for many years ran the uh, the, bar at, the American bar at the Savoy, which, of course, is still going strong today. It... Uh Immediately, I'm struck by the Portobello Road bottles that are on the shelf below Portobello Road gin. Well, all individually numbered and signed. This one you can see in the cabinet is bottle number one, so we'll be hanging on to that one. Uh, we've made a few since then, uh, and the Portobello Road gin is, is, is going fantastically well. And when, when was that made? We launched in November 2011. So we've been going, yeah, about 14 months now. So this really is the junior exhibit. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> <laughs> now, I heard a rumour that this place used to be where you lived. The top floor, yes, uh, where, where, where we uh, make the gin and uh, do the gin blending up there was my flat for about three years. Um, so so how, did, how did this work then? That you, One day you woke up and decided, you know what, this place ought to be is a gin palace. <laughs> well, I was moving. It's funny, actually. I, I, I needed to move out, really. Living above the shop is good fun for a while, but uh, it gets a bit much. So we, moved, we were looking for something fun to do. And from one idea, really, I suggested that a museum to gin might be fun here on Portobello Road. There's lots of tourists without a great deal to do apart from looking at the antique shops. Uh, and if you, as I said before, if you're going to tell the story of any alcohol in London, gin's the story to tell. And then my business partner, Jed, who's also the founder of our company, said, uh, well, could we get people to make their own gin? So we figured out that kind of side of things, which was probably the most complicated bit. And from there, we thought, well, if we're going to go to all this trouble, we might as well launch our own brand, which was where Portobello Road Gin came into it. So from one idea, it kind of snowballed into three. And then we were foolish enough to try and get all three to come together at once. We almost pulled it off as well. <laughs> Shall we start the process of making some, making some booths? Londonist Out Loud is available free as a stream at londonist.com or a weekly download via iTunes. Hit us up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, tweet at Londonist Sound, and check out images of our guests via the Londonist Out Loud stream on Instagram. So we're back upstairs on the second floor, and you were mentioning that the uh, the, the little stills. I'm calling everything a still. That's my. Yeah, these are, not, these are not stills. If we look through the round window there, you will see our still, little Copernicus the second, which is a an alembic copper pot still, the smallest copper gin still in London. Let me go and have a look at this thing because I actually need to know what a still looks like rather than just. So, ah, that's a still. That's the still. Um, this looks like it means business. What we're looking at here is uh, something about two, three foot tall, maybe three foot tall. It looks like it belongs in Turkey. It's got some of those <laughs> uh, onion dome shapes going on there. It's a big copper pot with two handles on uh, either side, a big stovepipe type thing, an onion dome, and then a pipe winding around leading into a copper bucket from which two uh, garden hoses come. Yes. Uh, <laughs> So the way this would work, really, is it's a very simple piece of technology. Distillation having first been perfected, circa kind of 820, 821, something like that, in Persia. Uh, so, you know, it's a fairly antiquated and simple technology. And basically, that's a giant kettle in the bottle, and we would fill that with our neutral grain spirit, which is a very kind of blank canvas alcohol, high, high in alcohol and very neutral in taste and flavour. And then we would add our chosen botanicals, so juniper, coriander seed, lemon peel, whatever you want to use. Throw that all in together, leave it to steep for a given period of time, around about 24 hours usually, and then turn the still on. And when it reaches 78 degrees centigrade, the alcohol turns to vapour, rises into that onion-shaped dome at the top of the still, and then through this elegant swan's neck and down into the, the bucket you described there, which is called the worm bucket and the pipe. It's called the what? The worm bucket, because the pipe leading from the top of the still, where this, all this alcohol vapour is travelling through, that coils around tightly inside the bucket, and we fill the bucket with cold water, and that change in temperature causes the alcohol vapour to turn back to liquid alcohol. And what drips out at the end is very strong gin of about 85% alcohol and some kind of four or five, six times more flavourful than we'll be used to. And then we can, if we're making London dry gin, all we have afterwards is more neutral spirit and more water to balance the intensity of the alcohol and the intensity of the flavour. That's basically it, really. The, the hose pipes you mentioned are just there to feed and, uh, and draw off the water uh, to keep that bucket nice and cold. And that's how we make gin, basically. Instead, what we've done here at the Gin Institute, instead of distilling all those botanicals together like we normally would to make a London dry gin, we've distilled each one individually, which enables us to then go through each of these different flavours, of which we have about 35 or so, talk about what each one brings to a gin, and then create a unique bespoke product uh, to your specification. So I think it'll be fun if we, if we did that now. 
Absolutely. Let's uh, let's have a quick look here. These are the glass tapped containers that I mentioned earlier on. Dried lemon, fresh lemon, dried orange, fresh orange, kumquat, lavender, wormwood, all sorts of exciting things in these smaller ones. And then uh, these are the water cooler refill sized barrels going on down here with corks in them we've got lemon angelica root yeah i mean all these are just the, the holding tanks for these smaller tub, tubs because those are quite heavy to lift uh, <laughs> so we have the smaller tubs to uh, are they glass yeah they are of course yeah they're really hefty things so i mean when we're looking when we're choosing the botanicals to use in our gin the flavors to use we don't just want to pick our favourite ones, we want ones that work well together. I think a good gin, the secret is a good progression of flavours. So for Portobello Road gin, we start with a big hit of juniper at the front. Now you should get a big hit of juniper at the front of all gins, really, by by uh, law, gin is a juniper-flavoured spirit, so that should always be the dominant flavour. And then if we think of kind of splitting the palate into four consecutive quarters, if you like, the second quarter we would get the kind of citrus flavours, which from Portobello Road gin is from bitter orange and, uh, and lemon. And then in the third quarter you get some of those more kind of elegant, delicate and ephemeral flavours, the floral flavours, that kind of thing, the more complicated flavours. And then on the back of the palate as well, we'll get those distinctive peppers and spices, which from Portobello Road is cassia bark and nutmeg, which give it that kind of a little bit of warmth and a little bit of uh, heat and kind of uh, almost like a whiskey-like warmth on the finish there. So we want to try and pick something from each of those four categories when we create your gin. Uh, just with the with the juniper element of gin, I just want to make sure I've got clear on this. Is it possible to, to have the, the gin, the, the sort of the alcohol sitting here and the, the juniper over here, then you add the juniper in and it kind of becomes gin at that point? Is that how it works? Kind of. I mean, if you look here, this, this big tub is uh, full of... Neutral spirit, 55%. The most that Jumbo Berries put into it, and you'll see they've been stood there for around about 48 hours now, and you'll see that that's taken on a very kind of yellowy hue. Oh, right there, there, there down the bottom there, so, yep. I mean, that's kind of like a bathtub gin, a cold, a cold compounded gin. You won't actually buy many gins that are made like that. It's a rather crude and uh, kind of inelegant way of doing it. But then we run that through the still again. That All the colour is removed, and, uh, and we end up with... Uh, a dry gin at that point and prior to that the, the neutral uh, alcohol's got no taste that's exactly right yes uh, so how, would you know you're drinking alcohol um, other than the effects yeah I mean it's uh, whilst it's got no real flavour or aroma it certainly does you know you would know it was alcohol on the way down for sure yeah it's got uh, you know that distinctive kind of, well, you know the flavour the, the flavour and smell of alcohol is hard to describe but everybody knows it right <laughs> <laughs> um, ok so we've got the uh, we've got the, the juniper base um, what, what comes next so, well shall we uh, it's probably going to be easiest if we pour these as we're going along so we'll start you with some juniper so in here we have juniper distilled on its own so this is we could, this is the only one we could actually call gin. The other ones don't become gin until they meet this one because one of the rules of gin is that juniper has to be the dominant flavour. So we're, always gonna, we're gonna start with this. and We're gonna make a 700 ml beaker full here, which is the capacity of a bottle. Now, we should describe this object you're holding. A giant test tube, essentially, I guess. <laughs> and, and giant is the word, it's, um, so we, we can tell exactly yeah, how big it is. Well, it's a, just over a litre. Uh, litre to there and then we've got a little room for topping up as well I remember these from um, school chemistry yeah. class um, we're going to use something like 40% uh, of the overall mix is going to be juniper so that's much larger quantity than we use of anything else let me just pour that for you right now so this I mean if we can taste a little bit of this in a second if you like you will see that this is very much a flavour that's reminiscent of gin Double glass Oops, sorry. Can we take a nose of that? It does adhere to all the rules of gin production. It's above the strength. It has to be minimum of 37.5 to be called gin. That's at 42. Um, it's made from neutral grain spirit, as it has to be. And the dominant flavour is juniper. So you could call that gin, put it in a bottle and call it gin. But really, but if you taste it, it's a very flat, one-dimensional, unadventurous gin with no real elegance or finish or complexity. Is there a particular way to taste gin? Um, I would just, I mean... A nose is much more Bit of a receptive than a palate, so take a good nose of it and then just a little sip. Out of tasting spirits is the uh, the kind of the sensation as well as just the flavour, if you like. So, but if you taste that, it's not unpleasant, right? It just tastes a lot like gin, but as I said, just very blunt flavour. Yeah, a bit blunt, exactly. So next, we will add to it some coriander seed, which is quite different in uh, flavour from coriander leaf. 
Um, it's more of a kind of citrusy flavour. Um, Olgians will use coriander seed, not by law, but by tradition, everyone uses it uh, as a kind of citrus base. Most people then go on to add lemon peel or orange peel or something like that, but we can't actually rely on citrus alone to, to give the citrus edge to the gin. Tanqueray being perhaps the uh, most famous example of a gin that doesn't use any citrus peels, although their recipe is supposed to be secret, so I don't know if I should be saying that. <laughs> So Jake's uh, getting hold of one of those great big jars now, uncorking it, and he's going to attempt to pour from the enormous jar into a, a tiny next bottle. And, and this is the coriander seed. So yeah, I'd say it was a de- um, delicate procedure, but really it just requires brute strength, I'm afraid. So that's our coriander there. So we're going to add another uh, 70 mils, so about 10% of the uh, overall liquid in the bottle. So that means pretty much half the bottle is just made up of juniper and coriander. They are definitely our foundations, our kind of building blocks for gin. Everything else we use from here on in is going to be what gives us that kind of complexity and uh, kind of uh, elegance. So this is where perhaps then you can play a bit more of an active role so we might try and uh... Ooh, I'm, just, I'm just smelling the uh, the coriander seed this is before it goes into the, the juniper mix that's very interesting that, yeah I, I really recognise that from, I mean, uh, still, from Jim it's very, yeah I mean it's uh, some people when they smell the coriander they still don't sound think it's more of a gin like aroma than the juniper actually it does yeah it's, like, it's a sort of orange peel thing going on yeah a little like a citrus but almost like a like a herbal citrus flavour, like mm. a lemon verbena or a, kind of a lemon pepper kind of flavour. Mm-hmm. Um, really nice, quite nice to drink on its own as well, the coriander, I must say. Let's get a whiff of the mix. Oh, yeah, that's, that's coming up. So now we probably want to pick some kind of citrus for you. Do you have a particular favourite? Or uh, what have we got here? We've got, we've got uh, a choice of fresh lime, pink grapefruit. What about apricot? I'm a big fan of apricot. We've got the apricot stone there, which is more of a nutty kind of uh, almond-esque kind of uh, flavour. So oh, I don't know about that. Maybe mandarin? The mandarin's got a nice kind of floral edge with that. Yes, that sounds good to me. Nice. Spring is almost in the air. We'll make you a nice summery gin. So we're only going to use 3%, so 21 mils for this. So a lot less than we saw of either the juniper or the coriander. And why, why is it so much less? Because all these other, as I said, the juniper and the coriander are very much the, the, the kind of building blocks, the foundations for it. everything else we use just kind of adds those extra layers of flavours, those top notes and bottom notes. So we'll add that one in there. And then you would probably want to pick some kind of uh, aromatic kind of delicate flavour, like a floral flavour perhaps. So we might be thinking of the lavender or the wormwood or the English hops, some licorice perhaps. What would you definitely not put with it? There's very few uh, bad combinations, really. It's, oh, okay. it's just that it's hard for people to make a bad gin here with the gin shoots, but my job is to make sure they don't. And I push people in the right direction. The only way people can really ruin it is if they get carried away. Like we have cardamom, for example, which is a wonderful flavour, but an incredibly strong flavour. So I never use more than 1% of that, which is just 7 mils in a 700ml bottle. Sounds like a tiny amount. But uh, we had a, I had a chap in a few weeks ago said, I love I loved the cardamom. I want to put 10% in. But it would have just tasted like shampoo, you know. So. <laughs> I think with the mandarin, then the orange blossom might go really well with that. Orange blossom, so yeah, very yeah. citrusy flavour. So again, we're going to give you 21 mils of that. Thinking about it, I'm not really sure I know what orange blossom would smell like. Let's have a whiff. Not what I was expecting, very tasty. Yeah, it's not ever so citrusy, more of a, almost like a tea kind of aroma almost. Well, speaking of tea, because these two are both got quite a sweet edge to them I think we'll dry it out a bit now by using one of our drier botanicals which is one of our more unusual ones is Yorkshire tea which, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm not aware of anybody else using in their gins there are a couple of gins that use tea uh, Beef Eater 24 made over in Kennington they use a uh, Japanese century tea and Chinese green tea and Wakechose have just launched an Earl Grey gin I believe as well but uh, Yorkshire tea is quite unique to us so where are you from Jack? From Leeds, so, you know, that explains a bit, right? (laughs) We did start out with uh, Fortnum and Mason Royal Blend Tea for, you know, it was Jubilee Year, Her Majesty's Year, and that was the the Queen's favourite tea, but uh, 
I think Yorkshire tea works a bit better, to be honest. So how do you go about getting the uh, clear liquid that we see here in the finest Yorkshire tea So much like this, really. We'd start, like, like when we were talking about the juniper, we'd start with a neutral spirit, cut open some tea bags, pour the tea. I was wondering if you use tea bags. <laughs> you really do? Yeah, yeah. Um, pour the tea in. The tea, we don't leave it for as long with the tea, actually, because if we leave it too long, we get too many of those tannins coming out. So we actually only leave the tea for about an hour or so. And then, again, just back through the still and that... Leaves all, all the colour gets left behind, but all those flavours come through, and uh, brings it to, brings us to what we've got here, which if you smell it, kind of smells like the steam off a cup of, off a pot of tea, or uh, like a nice sweet builder's cup of pot of tea. So we've got some citrus in there. Uh, we've got some floral flavours from the orange blossom. The tea's going to help us dry it out. So all we're missing now, I think, is a bit of spice. So. I think you might like this one, Cassia Bark. Familiar with Cassia Bark? No, I've, no, I've never smelt it. If you're not familiar with the name, you'll definitely be familiar with the aroma. It's very much... Well, that's like a, that says Christmas. Our memory of, of cinnamon. It's almost like... Uh, but it's also more cinnamony than cinnamon. Kind of like uh, big red chewing gum or dentine chewing gum, if you remember dentine. I, I do, and there's another thing that smells of that that you used to get when you were small, which um, was a, a kind of a popping candy. that You put it in your mouth and the, it kind uh, of explodes. dust. Yeah, I remember that stuff. Yeah, it's yeah, kind of like it. Sure, it's, it's the same smell. If we, try, if we try it next to actual cinnamon, the actual cinnamon is more of a kind of an orange yep. aroma, but uh, the cassie works really well, so we're going to give you a little splash of that as well. Now, there's some, there's some tasting glasses here on the table. I know that your neighbours are doing a tasting. You're next to uh, something along the lines of a rum institute, aren't you? The, uh, yeah, the uh, trail Apanesius on the corner there is uh, one of London's preeminent rum bars, I guess, and uh, they have the rum club every uh, first Monday of the month, yeah, so yeah, we'll be tonight. Who was here first? <laughs> They've been here a good long time. They've been uh, they were celebrating their 10th year, I think. But yeah, it's a uh, nice part of London to come and visit if you're a fan of, uh, of the spirits of various different categories. So, we've added your botanicals there. We've, we've only done a very simple mix for you today there. That's only, uh, what, five different botanicals. We uh, urge people to choose between about eight and 12, but, you know, you can make a gym with as few as four, really. Um, so I think this is going to be nice and clear, simple one. And we're just going to top it up with some more neutral spirit, which is going to take us to the line there. There you go. That's your Londonist Out Loud gin bespoke recipe. Let's give it a try see what you think. I'm interested to uh, get your opinion on it. That's smelling much more complex. It's a good benchmark London gin, I think. That's very tasty. Classy indeed. and elegant. Nice dryness to it as well. Mm, yep, yeah, and I can feel that um, those nice citrus uh, taste quite quite high in the palate. Yeah, very tasty yeah. indeed. So that's your gin. I hope you've, in, hope you've enjoyed making that. I certainly have. Thank you very much. It's your nice, nice understanding of... Uh, England's favourite spirit, I think. So England's favourite spirit? I would say so, yeah, surely. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go. Uh, what I wasn't expecting to have when I came here was uh, finest Yorkshire tea. <laughs> and we've done that. Listen, uh, thanks very much. I know you're uh, busy, and you've actually come in on your day off as well, which is well, extremely generous. There's worse ways to win a living, right? So I don't mind too much. <laughs> we should have a quick re- reminder to people who are interested in the Institute how they can uh, find the place. And, and is there a website, for example? There is a website, yeah. Um, and you can click forward onto the Gin Institute section of the website and book your places there. It's £100 a head for that. Uh, you get the full three, four-hour experience. A few drinks along the way as well. People usually leave smiling. And you get a full bottle of your own unique recipe gin, a bottle of our very own Portobello Road gin, which is also available uh, premium retail, Havinix, uh, Selfridges, and soon to be in Waitrose as well. So keep an eye out for that. Also, your recipe stays on our file, so should you stumble across a particularly winning recipe, they can just call up and uh, or email in, and we can post out another bottle of their own bespoke gin to serve at home whenever they like. So no excuse to stock supermarket gin ever again once you've visited the Gin Institute. And we're here at 171 Portobello Road. And, of course, you can just drop in for a drink if you want. Of course, yes. <laughs> Jacob Berger, thanks very much. Pleasure. Thank you. Here she stands. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to my guest, Jake F. Berger. Thanks, too, to Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Jack Hurd and Rory Anderson. And I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. 
budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.